and welcome to Mentality Meets, conversations that explore mental health stories and strategies to help leaders like you change the culture of mental health in the workplace. I'm Peter Larkham and I'm the mental health instructor and expert and your host today. Today we're going to be talking to Denise Stevenson, the founder and CEO of the charity Reach Out to Kids, which she started as a non-profit social enterprise 10 years ago to bring change in the fields of race, diversity and social mobility. With over 20 years experience as a planning lawyer, Denise also is a proficient negotiator and public communicator. And she advises companies on their strategies for engaging more diverse and inclusive recruitment methods. In this session, we discuss the importance of tackling the issues of race at every opportunity. So this year, Mentality Meets is part of a new mental health initiative called Mindshift Forum 2021, which is all about walking the talk of mental health to help us live a better 2021. So this month's challenge is all about building resilience and not being afraid to ask for help. So Mindshift Forum 2021 also includes a monthly live video with me. Uh, This month is Mentality Meets and next month we'll be doing a live discussion and question and answer session called Peter Larkham Live. So if you want to get access to the monthly challenge emails as well as the live Mentality Meets and Peter Larkham Live, then you can sign up on my website. It's all completely free. Just go to peterlarkham.com and sign up. For all those watching on YouTube, like this video, leave a comment and hit the subscribe button to get the latest content to help you with your mental health journey. Let us know in a comment below what you want to hear about in the future and share with your friends and family. You can also check out all that we have to offer at peterlarkham.com. Now let's not wait any longer. Here's my conversation with Denise Stevenson. My name is Denise Stevenson, as you know, um, and I am, oh, well, gosh, I wear so many different hats. So um, I'm a lawyer, so I've been a lawyer for 22 years, but I've kind of temporarily hung up that hat. Um, I'm a founder and CEO of a charity called Reach Out to Kids, which I have ran for 10 years. So I was running that whilst I was a partner at a law firm. Um, I'm a first, as in I was the first black partner at the law firm that I worked at. That law firm had been going for almost 200 years or over 200 years. So that was um, an amazing feat, but also very um, painful, I suppose, in some way. Um, I'm also a podcaster. So I I do run a podcast with my sisters called the Startline Podcast. And I'm also a founder of a running crew called Emancipated Run Crew, which creates a safe space for people of colour to run and run free. Um, I'm located in London. I'm in South East London. And yeah, passionate about race and racism. And the reason why I'm talking to you today is because I have been doing some talks on race and racism. So whilst on the back of the Black Lives Matter movement and the George Floyd murder, I was asked to do a number of talks and I have been doing various talks on race and racism in my experiences. And I just thought it would be a great opportunity to come and speak to you, Peter, because I love how you've positioned it, that you are a middle-aged, if you're middle-aged, I'm Asian, but middle-aged white man um, who is aware of racism, but not really aware of the part that you play in that and what you can do to kind of address the issue of racism in your sphere, in your circle. So, yeah. Knowing that this was coming up, Denise, I tried to raise this with my family too. And 
all that was coming back at me was, we're not racist. But there was very little that was trying to explore or understand that we may, without realising, treat people differently based on colour or gender or sexuality or... And then my, my mind kind of went racing to religion or politics or... And there are so many different things that we can be prejudiced about, which then creates this discrimination process. And um, at the moment, kind of, it's really for me about the race side of things because what I, what I want least of all is to be a different person in a different situation. But I also know that if I was the only white man in a black community, I would feel really out of place and culturally really at a loss with this. And my question to to you, Denise, and I suppose kind of my question into the audience also is how do I how do I begin to understand this mindset that I shouldn't be ashamed of who I am but also I shouldn't make other people feel ashamed of who they are and then how on earth do I do that have you got I I don't even know whether that question makes any sense I think I think it's important to say a few things I think it's important to say that um we we shouldn't apologize per se for the people that we are we've got to remember that we are all constructs of the society within which we live, okay? So the fact that you are a white man who has certain privileges, and I'm a black woman who may not, um, isn't your fault. So, it, you know, we're not, we don't choose where, where we're born or how we're born or whatever. I'm certainly not going to apologise for being a black woman, um, because I love who I am. And I would hope that you would say, I love who I am as a person as well. Um, but as I said before, we've got to recognise that we live within a certain construct, which means that historically, or has meant that historically, which continues to date, the lens of the world has always been from a, wo- a white worldview. Okay. And everything that has been created structurally has been done to secure or maintain that worldview and that position, okay? So when we're talking about white privilege, using Sarah's example, and people get a bit defensive about it, and I've seen people, you know, working class people saying, I don't have any privileges, I don't know what you're talking about. We've got to think, well, actually, what does that mean in practice? Having that privilege means that I can turn on the television and nine times out of 10, I'm going to see white people on the television screen. That I can walk into an environment as a white person and there'll be many other white people around me. So case in point, we were watching the Chelsea Flower show yesterday, my sister and I, and we were looking at it and thinking, where are the people in color? You're in Chelsea. Okay, Chelsea's quite an affluent area. However, we're in London. And so, but it was very kind of very proper and, you know, people with, you know, very influential people who were very affluent and the tickets are expensive. And that perpetuates that sort of 
that that worldview or that that position that white people will have privileges that aren't afforded to other people and people of color mainly. So so that 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 is important to recognize. The other thing to say is that when we're thinking about racism, we've got to remember that there are two sides to it. There's the overt racism where white people can say, I'm not racist. Um, I don't have a racist bone in my body. I have black friends, which is normally the the, the, the usual thing that gets people in stitches, actually. Um, so there is that piece. And, you know, there is a fairly smallish minority of people that can hand on heart say yeah no I'm racist and I don't like you as a black person and I'm going to make you know about it and I'm going to beat you about the head etc etc there's another side of racism which is more I I describe it as a kind of a it's a kind of a serpent it's a kind of an invisible snake that weaves its way through society and it's so subtle that you can hardly notice it but we're all victims of it. Um, even myself, I myself as a black woman, will see a group of black boys walking down the, the road and feel a little bit uncomfortable because society, the media, the government, all of these institutions that are holding up racism and racist attitudes tell you that that group of black boys are bad. When actually, you know nothing about them. They could be going to drama class. They could be going to dance class. They could be doing anything. Not necessarily bad. So we 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 need to recognise that there are these institutions and organisations which perpetuate racism, and that that actually has come out. You know, Boris Johnson, whatever you may think of him, I don't particularly like him at all because he perpetuates those messages. He subtly perpetuates those messages and reinforces. So all of this thing about being woke, all of these messages that they're kind of bringing out, um, even um, on the back of the Black Lives Matter protests, the report that they brought out last year about the fact that there is no no institutional racism in the UK, um, and then following that up with, the report on working class white boys and how they're suffering and how we need to be supporting them, pitting one group against each other and com- just continuously feeding that, continually perpetuating that. So your question is, what can I do as a white man to kind of overcome these things? Um, I think in all of this, first thing to say, we're all learning. We're all learning. This is all new to us. We're, as I said to you at the beginning, Peter, we're just starting to have these conversations with people outside of our racial group. Okay. So black people have been talking about racism all the time, because I say it's our experience. Um, Not that we wear it on our shoulder or carry it on, on your back, but you are subjected to it almost on a daily level. Every time you go into the workplace, you will be facing a level of microaggression or questioning about your abilities or being called aggressive when really, if another colleague was doing it, that would be termed as assertive. So there were these things that you you, you um, endure, I suppose, as a person of colour. And what 
white people can do or what you can do yourself is conversations like this, opening up the drawbridge and saying, I'm going to jump in and really learn about this myself. Um, And teaching yourself, delve into the history of the UK, really take a hard look at it and ask questions around why is this not taught in the education system? Why, Why is the contribution of black and brown people in this country not taught in our education system? And how are we going to do that? How are we going to how are we going to make that change? You can be campaigning to your children's schools about that, um, and also it's about um, not expecting black people or brown people to solve the issue of racism. That's it's not our problem. We didn't create it, so it's not down to us to solve it. We've all got to do our part, including white people. We've all got to do our part in addressing these issues. That's a long response to your your question. There's a lot there. There is a lot there. What I think I am most aware of and potentially most afraid of is either I raise the conversation around discrimination and race within the work that I do and make a thing out of it, or I don't and therefore completely diminish the context of discrimination and race. Because the work that I do is around kind of mental health. There is definite statistics out there that say that minority groups, um, including the the race, sexuality, gender and everything else like that, um, there is definite statistics that say if you feel like you are marginalised or discriminised against, your mental health is going to struggle in the context of that. But I'm also aware that if I have delegates in the room of colour then I raise it, it feels like I'm making a point of it. But I'm also aware that if I don't raise it, then am I simply merging it into the background and saying, well, it's not really an issue. And I I always struggle with that feeling because I, I never quite know the right way to hit the discussion because I want to, I want to kind of tackle it in a bear hug, you know? I want to really grapple with it to try and understand how to be an advocate and help people understand that actually the the institutionalised racism, there there must be, because actually I didn't even know it existed, you know, until a couple of years back because of... Not because I am in an institute, but the entire country, I think in one way or another, is fairly institutionalised. And um, can you help me see what racism looks like from your side of things? Because I've never experienced it, I don't even know what I, what I might be doing or saying or acting like. This is, this is the concern, is that how am I meant to tackle discrimination if I don't even know that what I'm doing or saying or, or being like is, is being discriminatory. And I'm aware that I may be being discriminatory in this entire conversation. So no, 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 no. Can I mean, you help I me try and understand this? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the way, the way in which I, I try and recognise that question for myself and try not to get angry about it is I don't know what it's like to be a gay person. I'm heterosexual. I can't possibly know what that experience is like or 
or, or suffering in terms of discrimination. I can understand the feeling of being excluded and marginalized because that's what I've experienced. Um, but I, I can't, I don't get it because I don't walk in those shoes. And I think that is what white people essentially are saying. But I think it's it's fairly, um, it, on, on, so that I can accept on the one hand, but the, on the other hand, it's a little bit just disingenuous to say that because you must see it as in the fact that you will walk into certain spaces and there's not a single black person, or you will go into a company, you know, and sit on a board and there's not a single black person, but you don't question why, you know, and it, 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 it's about starting to ask those questions um, about raising the conversation. Um, it is a delicate balance. And unfortunately, you're going to get people who lob those um, those those bombs at you in terms of you being woke or you getting on a bandwagon or whatever it is. But you've got to make the decision. I'm going to continue to have this conversation because it shouldn't be swept under the carpet because it is too important for us to disregard. And if we want to make a change in our societies in terms of race and racism, we've got to we've got to get in the trenches. We've got to roll our sleeves up and do our part. So it is about maybe caveating and saying, I'm truly committed to this conversation. I'm truly committed to taking action and doing something about it. So when I raise this in conversation, honestly, I'm not getting on a soapbox. I'm, I'm calling it out because it needs to be called out. It needs to be discussed. It needs to be addressed and issued and, and the issues um, tackled. So uh, when I was trying to qualify as a lawyer, um, I was very young when I decided to become a lawyer. I was 14. And um, I would tell my teachers and they would say, Denise, that's not for you. It's, it's not for you at all. I don't think you'll be, you'll be um, able to do law. Law is too hard for you. Now, it could be that because they didn't see that I was able enough to do that. It could be. But by and large, all of the teachers that I spoke to came to me with that message. And I, when I was a little bit older, spoke to other friends of mine. My sister-in-law was a case in point. And by and large, most of my peers who were black were told, no, you can't do that. You're not capable. So then I discovered actually there's a pattern here. So it was my, my head teacher, he was the only one that said to me, Denise, if you're really serious about pursuing a career in law, here's a book. It was called The Introduction to Law. Read that. And if you're serious about pursuing this law thing, I'm going to help you. And he did. He was the only one. Fast forward, um, I'm, in, I'm qualified. I'm working in law. Um, I'm, I do planning law. Oh, I used to. Um, and I would go to planning inquiries regularly. So I would sit behind a barrister. I would be the only black person in the room. And I can say countless times the amount of people that said, she to help? Is she here to make tea? Is she everything but you're the lawyer in the room who's instructed this barrister 
and who's helped to put this case together. Everything but that. Um, I've had instances where people have come up to me when I used to have long hair, my hair in extensions, tugged on my hair and said, what is this rope? Which completely unacceptable, completely unacceptable. And I was so angry and upset, but I thought, Denise, just respond to this in a professional manner. Just tell them that they're being stupid or silly um, and just walk away. Um, yeah, I've, I've uh, you know, there's, there's been countless, countless things like that. Um, and people just not supporting you in your profession or your career, um, you know, not, not, and, and actually trying to block your path. So when I was trying to come up as a lawyer, numerous times I was, you know, refused a training contract and you couldn't really assess the reason for that. But then you'd have a white person who's younger than me come in and get the training contract. So, you know, things like that would, would happen regularly. Um, I've been spat on. <laughs> so when I went to law school, um, I was I went to law school in Chester. We were in a club and I was with my ex-boyfriend then and he was a white guy. And uh, a guy came up behind me and gobbed on my back. And I told my boyfriend then and it was just he was tearing the place up, up trying to look for this person. So, you know, I mean, th there's been more subtle experiences and, you know, obviously, um, you know, growing up in a council estate means that you see certain things, you see certain people getting privileges and you're not. Um, and so that that that's all swept up in class. And, you know, this country does have a distinct problem with class and race and it does not admit it. It does not admit it because it wants to be seen as this progressive country, you know, where everyone is welcome. But actually, that's not the reality. You know, it's, you know, racism is endemic in the healthcare system and, employment, education, and housing, everywhere you look, it's touched, it's infected by this disease. I call it a disease, which is racism. Wowza. <laughs> I love this conversation. This is, I suppose kind of, I knew it was there. You know, you say, I, I, you, you must know. And looking back, I must have known. Because it's it's not a huge surprise, which is why I can quite happily go, I'm not racist. But I hadn't fully appreciated just how vile it gets. And I haven't suffered, you know, I haven't suffered half of what other people have suffered. You know, I mean, you know, so last year with the Black Lives Matter movement and actually on the, on the back of George Floyd, Myself and I think maybe every person of colour suffered some level of trauma. Trauma. So that's where you get into the question of how does racism impact people mentally and physically. I had friends telling me, male friends groan, they cried. Because it took them back to a place where they were discriminated against, where they had been hauled by the police you know, stopped and searched so many different times. Professional people, like I have a friend who is a CEO of a charity, pulled over by, by, by the police various times just because he's driving a nice car. And, and, you know, not only just pulled over, but really kind of antagonised and, and sometimes taken down to a police cell for no reason other than 
the colour of their skin. No other reason. You couldn't put it down to anything else. You know, and that's been going on for centuries. That's been going on for years. Um, so, so, you know, and, and, you know, the Windrush scandal and everything that's come out of that. People have suffered and are still suffering. I, I listened to a podcast the other day and it, it's, it's really telling, but um, the, the podcast host said, and this is going to sound really harsh, but unfortunately it's true. Whilst white people are catching up on this discussion of racism and trying to educate themselves and trying to open their minds, black people are dying and suffering. And that is the reality of the situation. So if you haven't seen or didn't know about racism, now's a great time to start learning, to start educating yourself and not necessarily asking people, what should I do? But just going and looking yourself and doing some groundwork yourself and really thinking, as I said before, let's have a look at the history and how we got here, because without that, we don't know where we're going. So you have to teach yourself about how we got here in order to have a clearer vision on where we're going and what you want to do and how you can contribute to that and how you can make a difference and a change. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what I'm liking about this is that I feel like I'm, I'm really being challenged just in my own little world of how I interact with my kids and talk about racism. And Sarah's got a, a, a great question here. She said, during the experiences, so you were talking about um, the experiences you've had uh, where people have, have been vile towards you. And she said, did anyone around you stand up for you or intervene? Um, does it help if other people's intervene? Uh, and then thinking of the perspective of being an ally. Do you, do you know what I mean? It's like, when is it right to stand up and say, oi, that's wrong. And when does doing that actually disempower the person from standing up for themselves? It, it does... I get it. Um, to answer Sarah's first question, no, no, no one stood up for me. No one. Um, and you often get those scenarios where, so for example, when I was at Westminster City Council and I was working as an admin assistant there at the very beginning of my legal career, I was just dipping my toe in the water. The person that I used to work to almost on a daily occurrence would shout at me, like really bullying, really horrible, horrible, horrible experiences. And we used to have, um, we used to work in offices where there weren't open plan. We had partitions, but the top bit was open so everybody could hear across the space that we were in. And, um, and, uh, and there were other lawyers in the room when this person was shouting at me regularly, almost daily. No one, not one of them, defended me. And the power dynamics were of such that I was the most junior person in the team. This was the head of the team. How am I going to stand up for myself? So using that, that second question that Sarah asked, should we be standing up? Absolutely, you have to call it out. Absolutely, particularly where the power dynamics are off. If you see racism or see discrimination or see an imbalance, you've got to call it out. And as a society, we tend not to do that. It's like when you see somebody having an argument on the train with a stranger, people don't want to get involved. They want to just keep to themselves and not, you know, because they're afraid of the repercussions for themselves. But how do we change things if we don't? 
if we don't stand up for each other? How do you change things if you don't call it out? It doesn't, it doesn't change. And that's what racism, that's what racism wants to do. It wants us to keep silent. It wants us to stay in our own little individual bubbles and be selfish and just look out, out for ourselves because then it will just continue on its merry way. We'll get back to our interview in just a second. Mental ill health costs UK employers around £1,700 per team member each year. That's a staggering £45 billion every year. Despite a general awareness that mental health is more of a problem than ever, most people have no idea what to do. This is where we can help. Mentality is a one-hour video course equipping your staff to spot the signs of poor mental health and take action. Invest in your people. From the cleaner to the CEO, because every person, whoever they are, can be affected. And now here's the second half of our interview. Celine's kind of put a question out saying, if you see someone being beaten up, what do you do? And it's it's one of those things, Celine, for for me again, kind of wanted to, to personalise it and put my hands up, is that in the past... I wouldn't have seen the two as equal. Does this make sense? I wouldn't have seen the verbal processing as the same as someone being beaten up. And Shalene's kind of just, but, but why? <laughs> I was going to ask you that. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know. Probably because, again, going back to that institutionalised process, is that Firstly, you don't get in other people's business. This is kind of that that feeling that you said about being in the train. And do, there's there's very much, I think it's a British thing that actually you don't you don't get involved. And if someone was being beaten up, then I can see the 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 visual damage and process. And so there is something inside of me that would then kick up and go, no, that that needs to stop. Whereas verbal arguments and stuff and uh, especially kind of in the context of, of strangers and you don't know whether they know each other. You don't know whether there's kind of anything else going on in the background. You don't know whether this is just a, a spat. And certainly it, let's say public transport, because I've been in that situation where I have uh, witnessed kind of this and was actually really quite proud of how many people stood up uh, to to engage with this. But I think if it's kind of between two people, especially if they're giving as good as they're getting, there's a little bit of a dynamic of, I don't really know whether I should get involved with this. And Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. But often when you're in a work environment and you are, or even or even in, in, in the education environment, um, and you see a dialogue happening between people, it's not that, it's not two people going on, eh? It's, it's usually a person in a position of power, um, berating a person of colour or or picking out certain things that you you know to be unfair because it could be your work colleague you know to be unfair um and so it is about saying well is it right that this person is aggressive aren't they being assertive aren't they just being firm you know, and exactly from Shaleen, if they were white, if the, if it was a white person, what would you do? What would you say? Would you just continue on your merry way and not think about it? Or would you kind of pipe up and say, well, actually, this person's got a point here? I think that's a that's a great 
question and dynamic. And I've got to, I've got to admit, guys, I, I want to be as honest as I can be. No, no, no. And this, yeah, it's not, it's not an attack. It's Please just, feel free to shoot the messenger. That, yeah, that's no, kind no, of what no. I'm trying to say. No, no, no. And actually, actually yeah. Christiana said um, in here, she said, also, we need to not rename these incidents as vile. She said, because they're racist. Call a spade a spade. Uh, renaming a racist incident as something else actually diminishes it and becomes a part of the problem. So, Christiana, I, I totally want to hear that and acknowledge it, you know. Um, and then, Shaleen, kind of, if they were white, what would you do? And weirdly, if it was a white person and a white person, I probably wouldn't do anything. Yeah, I was going to If it was a black person and a black person, I probably wouldn't do anything, you know. Uh, certainly more so if it was a black person and a black person, because I feel like I would properly put myself in the midst of this situation um, and would feel totally alienated in that. But weirdly, if it wasn't if it wasn't a white person and a black person, I would probably have less of a of an issue with it, which then comes back to. So why do I? Because it's the white and black. And, and again, this comes back into my mindset, which is why make a thing of it because it's black versus white when actually if I see both parties as equal would I just does this make I I don't know if I'm even beginning to to say the right thing yeah I think we're taking away from the core question that Sarah had in the first place right which is what is it that you're what is it that is is um is being played out here and obviously you've got to think about context so if you think about, so Sarah was responding to my comments about my experiences, okay? So my experiences was that teachers were telling me, no, you can't. Um, if there was another teacher, would they stick up for me? No, they wouldn't. Why not? Um, in, the, in the context of me being um, mistaken for the tea lady, where... We, I was training um, commissioners for the Infrastructure Planning Commission, as it was then at the time. And one of the, so it was a big thing. You know, these people were very important people. Um, and a white lady came up to me and I was, I was hosting. So I was, I was training them for the day along with other partners in the, in the firm. And um, uh, she, I was hosting, so I was doing teas and coffees. And she came up to me and she said, um, she leaned in and she said, oh, you know, for a minute there, I, I thought you were the tea lady, but I thought, you know, that, that, that you know, um, and she just left it there. And I said to her quite properly, no, I'm not a tea lady. I am one of the partners at this law firm and I'm training you this morning. She went bright red. So just in case I, I thought, is this me? And that's another element, that gaslighting thing that we haven't even touched upon. Is this me or am I imagining it or is this real? Is she trying to tell me what I think she's trying to tell me? And why would you say that to someone? And if, 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 if I was mistaken at all, her reaction told me everything I need to know. She blushed bright red. She stumbled over her words and she said, oh, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to offend. I was just, you know, thinking you know? Um, and so if you're, if you're stood next to me, why would you not say anything? Why would you not correct that person? But there was no defenders. Oh, I, 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 um, I want to come back to the gaslighting process because it's so, it's so quick and so easy 
to to kind of jump in on things and explode and um but I think when when I've experienced situations so I'm fairly small in stature um uh big in in spirit I think that's how I view myself uh that I'm a, a you don't come across as small in stature at all well that's because I'm taking up most of the screen here Denise you know there's, <laughs> there's a deliberation of why I've done this uh but um but I can remember being in a training room similar to kind of getting everything ready and um one of the people thought I was the technic technical guy coming in to sort out everything I was like no no I'm here to, <laughs> to do your training today and it, it really puts you on a back foot of kind of what do I need to do differently to prove who I am and prove my state and and so totally that feeling um but just kind of talk me through this this gaslighting comment and, and process for you it's when you say and it it happens a lot in the work environment I think um it's when you say I have suffered so somebody's been discriminatory towards me in some way shape or form they have said this or they have made me feel like this so in the case of a sort of a senior boardroom scenario that I come back to you might be the only black person in the room you may have made a very valid point or suggestion but be shut down and say and and be told well no no that's not a very good idea and then in the next breath your white colleague makes the same suggestion and everybody around the room says oh fantastic idea fantastic and you might you might take that to your manager and say actually I felt a bit slighted and felt undermined and felt that my contribution was not was not um, warranted and again there's no other reason why your your suggestion was not accepted apart from the fact that you are the only black person in the room and your manager says no 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 um, must be must be some other, must be some other reason why you know that happened and tries to justify or excuse what's happened in the room. So you see this quite a lot in relation to, so the the, the Euros, which just happened, um, and everything that happened with with the Black players. And there was some commentary around the fact that Oh no, it's not. It's not really. You know, all of those racist comments weren't really racist comments. You know, they, people were just angry about the fact that they missed the goal. Absolute and utter crap. Absolute and utter crap. And that's how you, you, you being the media or you being that person making that observation, tries to gaslight people of color by making them feel as if what they're experiencing is not really what they're experiencing. So it's kind of, you you could feel as if you're going slightly mad because you start to question yourself. Tell me, did I really, did that really happen? Did I really interpret that in the right way? When that person made that comment about my hair or wanting to touch my hair, is it that I'm being overly sensitive or is it really racism? Really? Um, and it's, and, and, and you experience it all the time as black people we just get used to it but it's not right and it's not okay absolutely oh brilliant what i'm beginning to hear and what i'm beginning to understand is that if i am in a situation where i feel that racism is a part of 
the protesting of people or the conversation or there is anything that is undermining someone, then I shouldn't be afraid to stand up. I shouldn't be afraid to call it out and say, hang on, that's wrong. Yeah. Um, what I'm also beginning to understand and explore, and I, I kind of want to, I'm a little bit nervous about this one because it's the conversation around kind of the arguments and kind of white person versus white person having an argument where they're basically kind of dissing each other and that versus the white person and the black person kind of doing exactly the same process. And the question of, well, why, why would I not stand up for either of them? Do you know, do, oh, I can't even verbalize what I'm thinking. Um, because my temperament is I'd much rather not get involved. But I feel like what I'm being challenged to do is actually why let any form of negativity around people, why why let that go? Why why be okay with that and not stand up for people, um, regardless of, of colour and race? I suppose I suppose the the, the, the the key thing at the end that you said there is regardless of colour or race. Um we 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 are talking about racism and it's important to distinguish that so so in the context of your question which i think is if i wouldn't if i wouldn't interfere if it was a white person speaking to another white person why would i interfere if it's a white person speaking to a black person and they're both going at loggerheads right and i i'm i'm trying to get you to come away from that scenario because I think with that particular question, only you can answer that. I can't answer that for you. What I can say to you is that if you if you come across not and it it won't it, it doesn't present itself. Racism often doesn't present itself in that explicit way. You often don't see two people going at loggerheads. You know, to each other. It's more subtle than that. And maybe it's so embedded that as a white person, you can't readily see it. But actually, I think that there is some part of you or white people that do see it. It's just that they don't really want to take up the mantle, or in some cases, they don't care, which is a much harder nut to crack. But if you see, some injustice which you you know in your gut that there is no other explanation for this apart from racism you have got to call it out and that's what i'm saying you've got to call it out i hear that and and sarah's just put a question in in the chat where it says pete if you saw a white man being aggressive or abusive to a white woman would you intervene there's no doubt in my head you know um and so why, 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 <laughs> why do I struggle to see it, you know? Why do I struggle to see the same context against any person of race? And says, what worries, what worries you most about intervening is, I, I honestly don't know. Honestly, no idea. Okay, so, so I think, I think it, I don't know if you ever saw, I can't remember the name of the woman who did, in the 50s, did that experiment with white children to get them to understand about racism. And she, yes, I know the one you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So imagine, I don't know if you've got kids, 
But if you do, imagine if you had one child with blue eyes and another one with brown eyes, and you know that your child with blue eyes was being discriminated against because they had blue eyes, and only because of that. Would you not step in and defend your child, or would you not step in and defend your friend? You would, because you know it's wrong. And that's the thing that we're saying. It's as silly as that. And that's why racism is so stupid, but so entwined and embedded in, in, in the society that we live in. So I have another question for you, Denise, and that's such a great example of just how petty it is. Um, so I've got another example. And uh, over the road from, from where I live um, is another kid from my son's school. Uh, so yes, I have kids. I have kids. I have uh, three of them, um, and my son doesn't get on with this boy. And now he's of, of Chinese origin. Um, come across to this country. Kind of the 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 parents have very little English, uh, and so I am constantly amazed uh, at their ability to to have conversation. But they're wanting to organise a play date, and. Everything inside me is going, yes, we need to support this. We need to encourage this. But also I've got to understand that my son actually just doesn't get on with this kid. They don't play together. They don't kind of engage with each other at a school. And so then there's another side of me going, hang on, am I forcing something? Or am I trying to force something in the context of this? And I want to, I want to know. I want to be told what to do, Denise. Um, because on the one hand, I don't want my son to to be in, oh, I don't want him to kind of, oh, I don't even know what to say. Um, so basically, like, yeah, Christiana's just put in a very good question. Have you asked your son why he doesn't get on with this little boy? So my, my son is very much uh, a, a girly friend boy. So he all of his friends at school at the moment are girls. So he's eight years old. Um, he's not into football or the other kind of stuff that the other boys would be into. So um, has quite a, a niche little kind of group of, of friends. So um, him going to or having any of the other lads in the class over for a play date would feel weird to him, you know? Um, and that's just because he doesn't, engage in the same way so have I asked my son why no I haven't actually said can I just ask why don't you like this other boy um but I'm also aware that actually at the moment the majority of his friendship group are girls anyway um so you can't you can't you can't force it I mean you know that that is just something that you know kids aren't gonna we don't all get on we don't all get on you know there are personality clashes all the time um, but you shouldn't be kind of uh, trying to facilitate something that's not, wouldn't naturally occur. You know, if, if the rationale for it was uh, all, of a, all of his friends are white and he doesn't have a single friend of colour, and so therefore there's an issue there, there would be an issue, you'd need to have a conversation with your son. But it doesn't sound like that is the reason to me. Just No, and it doesn't feel like it's the reason to me either. And... But also, I'm very aware, so I live in a, a very white community, like very white community. And we have um, kind of different shops that are popping up where we're getting different nationalities 
into our shopping space and I'm loving it because it, it forces us to kind of engage with this and forces my, my kids to actually see people of different colours and different uh, cultures. Um, but also for them at the moment, I mean, they're, they're eight, five and three, so they're still small. They're still trying to understand kind of the, the context of all this. And I just want to be able to do it well. I don't want to, I don't want to force it, but also I don't want to dismiss it either. Um, <laughs> so Christiana's now put, what else are you doing to support your children to see different cultures and different people? Um, and this is where, for me, I'm trying to find every opportunity um, and children never too young uh, to have already experienced racism. And I find that so, so heartbreaking, actually. Um, children are never too young to have already experienced it. They are talking about, I mean, you know, young people suffer racism very young kids suffer racism at school very very young um i think i heard something on woman's hour i think it was um about a young girl who sorry a mother of a young girl who um her mum is uh white the child is mixed race um and a young boy she was only like six and a young boy went up to her and said does your mommy still love you even though you're brown? So they're never too young. And, you know, it is about, you know, let's get books and let's show them films and let's introduce them to different cultures in that way, you know, um, so that it's, it's kind of normalised, so that they're seeing people of colour as well as white people within their sphere and it's not, it's not alien to them, you know? Um, and, and making sure that we're having those conversations with them. If they do come to you and say to you, such and such at school who is brown or black said this and somebody else said that. And it's about, well, what learnings can we learn from here and what can we teach our children about what's wrong with racism? You know, so it's, a, it's about feeling empowered enough to have those, those conversations with them. But I think um, one one other thing, I think one of the things piece that we were talking about at the very beginning was trying to ensure that you don't adopt the white saviour complex, which is something that, uh, you know, a lot of white people are kind of experiencing or trying, trying to avoid or some people are, so some people would just jump on that bandwagon that black lives matter bandwagon and say yeah we support black lives matter and you know we're going to come in and save the day and blah 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 don't do that you know it, it's patronizing it's insulting um it, it, it is about um playing your part but not thinking that you're swooping in with a superman cape to save these poor black and brown people we we don't need that. Thank you very much. You know, it's that that kind of so that there's a balance there that needs to be um, needs to be adopted. And that might sound quite harsh, but I don't. And I, I I don't mean it to be. But actually, it just has to be said. <laughs> you might have to sleep on it. I I think I, I think I think my mind is is being fried at the moment with so many different processes and I found this so helpful and as we draw this to the close I really want to say thank you 
um, for allowing me to explore this topic further with you. I thank you for just your insight uh, into helping me understand this better. You know, and I hope our, our audience also feel like they're they've been on a journey through this. I feel totally bamboozled by it. Um, and like you say, we're not going to fix it overnight. But actually, as I engage with this conversation to the best of my ability, and as I do my utmost to impart that into my children and tackle this, then hopefully the next generation will be in a better place than we are at the moment. Oh my gosh, I feel completely bamboozled. Now, as we move into the rest of this week, let's please tackle issues of racism wherever we may experience it. If you can also find out more and connect with Denise Stevenson by visiting speakerscollective.org. So next time, in two months' time, which is November, we'll be talking with Ben Jones. And we're going to be talking about the topic of hopelessness and asking the questions, have you ever lost all hope and so on that note i hope you enjoy this episode of mentality meets no matter where you are on your mental health journey you can find plenty of content and information about our resources at peterlarkham.com including one of our mental health courses for you and your business don't forget to subscribe to the youtube channel where you can find our entire back catalogue of conversations with mental health leaders and experts and if you want to spread the word drop us a review on the podcast app and share this with your friends. Thanks again for joining us for Mentality Meets, conversations that explore mental health stories and strategies to help leaders like you change the culture of mental health in your workplace. Mm-hmm.